0: Open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses uh, 9 through 11. We're continuing in our our little series we got going on called Don't Lose Heart. Uh, For those of you that are visiting or uh, just stopping in, uh, you're not missing anything. We've been going through a series in chapter 3 in Ephesians where Paul begins this prayer and then he digresses and begins to share this unfolding story of the mystery of God. And for 12 verses, he explains this story. And then in the 13th verse, he says, because of this. So now in, in light of that, I don't want you, the church, to lose heart. And so we've been slowing ourselves down and, and taking a look at these 12 verses to look at why Paul would seem to think that the church could be encouraged or find comfort. And we've looked at things like Uh, blessed self-forgetfulness, how God uh, causes us to look beyond ourselves. That's the way that he comforts us. We've looked at at, at revelation, how God comforts his church through revelation in his word. We've looked at our own foolishness and our own inadequacies and how the gospel brings us comfort in light of those things. And this morning, we're going to look at comfort in the big story of God. We're going to find that in verses 9 Through eleven, we're not really going to treat verse ten because verse ten is a a doozy. So we'll we'll do that next week. But verses nine and verses eleven are are intricately interwoven by this little this theme that keeps coming up, and I'm hoping you'll see it as we read it. Let's start in verse nine. This is what Paul says. He says, "I was chosen." To explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up the scriptures this morning, without a doubt, our church is filled with people who are living out their own different, their own story. In a variety of ways, in different seasons, through tragedy, through comedy, through happiness, through grief. Lord, our our underlying hope this morning is that we would be able to come together corporately in an attitude of worship and open up your scriptures and be able to trust that as we open up the revealed word of God, that you would absorb our lives and our stories into your own. God, we've come here because we hope and we trust that there is redemption in this life for broken people, for the messes that we have made and the pieces that we're trying to pick up and put back together, that we uh, are able to find the sense of hope that we can come here and that we can look to the cross and to the resurrection and find in this story a great hero in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we need you to do that. We're very good at striving and trying to uh, make everything make sense. We're very good at trying to strive after our own sense of self-worth. And I'm asking that today, Lord, you would break it by the power of the gospel. You would reveal the redemptive story of a God that looks at sinners and says, I love you too much. To let you continue in that route, I am intervening by my powerful grace. Lord, we want to drink deeply of that today. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing in the coastlands. What you have been doing throughout history. That we would be able to dive in and be liberated by it in the name of Jesus. Heal us, God. Restore us. Renew us where we're broken. Make us a church that rejoices in what you are doing right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at these verses. Look at verse 9. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. I want you to underline that, at least in your mind, this mysterious plan or this mystery. Hold on to that word. Look at verse 11. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus Our Lord. I want to spend the rest of our 40 minutes together juggling and looking at two separate words the mystery of God and the eternal purpose of God. You have a mystery of God and you have the purpose of God. And they're two different things, though they they tell the same story. And Paul actually says specifically, it it comes out even better in the NASB and, uh, and the ESV. In verse 11, he says, this was in accordance with his eternal purpose. Well, what was in accordance with his purpose? The mystery. In other words, the mystery that is now being revealed by Paul is for the end goal of God's eternal purpose being accomplished. The mystery is subservient. It serves God's purpose. Now, if you and I could spend the next 35 minutes unraveling what the mystery is and what God's purpose is, it will forever change our identity. It will change how we view and how we attend and gather as a church and scatter as a church. It will change your sense of mission. Because how do we think of Things like this. How do we think of identity and how do we think of church and how do we typically think of mission? We think of them usually in terms of our own plans. My identity, something that I I'm concocting and building together by my, my own goodwill and by my own good deeds. How do we think of church? Well, we think of it in light of our own plans. What's it here to, to do for me? How does church serve me? What do we think of mission? Well, it's, it's my mission and my purpose and my job and my career and my passions in life. But if we were able to step away from our plans for a moment. And begin to ask the question that Paul is alluding to what is God's eternal purpose? Oof. Think it might change a few things. And I want you to daydream about that for a second as we begin to unpack that. What is what is God's passion? What is God passionate about? What is God obsessed about? What what drives the God of the universe? God doesn't sleep, but if he were to sleep, what is it that would keep him up at night? I know it drives me. I know some things that drive you, but what drives God's passion? And what if we could discover that? Now, if we were able to step away from our uh, vignette, our uh, understanding of our own plans and our own passions, and we were to read the scriptures like that, we would begin to see the passion of God float to the surface. It's like a golden thread that 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 moves from Genesis all the way through Revelation and everything in the middle. Genesis chapter one and two, the the very beginning of our, our Christian Bibles, start with no sin on earth. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the only two chapters in all of the first testament that have no sin because the fall did not happen yet. And you see in Genesis 1 and 2, everything that God was designing to be. You begin to see his passion Unfolding and it starts like this God creates creation, He creates a garden, He makes people, He creates community out of people, Adam and Eve, and then He plants Himself directly in the middle of them and dwells among them. You see this pattern start to unravel throughout the Old Testament. See Jesus dwelling in the middle of this family family of abraham and through abraham you get the nation of israel and god dwelling with the nation of israel and then dwelling in this tabernacle and after the tabernacle dwelling in this temple as you get into the new testament you see this pattern unfolding even deeper as jesus christ the son of god steps down into earth puts on flesh and god dwells in him in bodily form In a deeper, more powerful, and more profound way. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected from the dead. And by the power of the the Holy Spirit makes a church out of living people. And God begins to dwell in those living people as he dwelt in his son. We see Paul saying this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. Together we are his house. Verse 22, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Jesus would pray in John chapter 17, 21, for you and for me. He would say to the Father, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. May I be in you, and may you be in me, and may they be in us, and may we be all in one another as you dwell in these people. It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) The purpose of God beginning to float to the top. What is God's driving passion? It seems to be that he wanted to create humanity for the strict purpose of sharing himself with them. Dwelling among them. Get to Revelation Last two chapters of Revelation. Chapter 21 and 22. Are the only two chapters in the New Testament. Where you see no signs of sin. Because the fall has been erased. And Genesis 1 and 2. And Revelation 21 and 22. Mirror each other. And these themes. That start in the book of Genesis. In those first two chapters. Begin to unfold in a story. Until it climaxes until it culminates in what you see in Revelation 21 and 22. And those themes begin to come to the surface. What is God's driving passion? Well, it's to save messed up people. What's well, to fix things. Well, it's social justice. All of those things are things that God does, but what is his eternal driving passion? What is the point? He created Everything he created you because he wants to dwell within you. He wants to dwell in us as a community. This is the driving purpose, the big story of God that is unfolded throughout scripture. Now, why is this comforting to you and me? Some of you lost your job. Some of you are losing your marriages Some of you can't get along with your kids. Some of you can't get a job. Some of you can't pay your bills. How in the world is God dwelling in us in this big unfolding story supposed to comfort us in all of that? Here's why. It gives us a divine explanation to all of these broken, scattered scenes that we find ourselves in. Famous Russian author, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, wrote this landmark book, a novel called The Brothers Karamazov. And this novel is proclaimed from everyone from Wikipedia, which is a person, to Ernest Hemingway as being one of the best books that has ever been written, at least in the 20th century. And when I opened up this book to try to tackle the best book, supposedly, that any man has ever written, I kept putting it down over and over, and it took me about a year to finish the entire story. Not because it was too long, but because I became became so frustrated with the novel at the beginning. Not only did nothing seem to make sense, but there seemed to be so many different stories. It's the story of a, a dysfunctional Russian family. But in this story... I would come upon a chapter and one chapter would be uh, about this young kid who is working in a monastery trying to find God. But then in the next chapter, it would be about these schoolyard children that are throwing rocks at one another. And then in the next chapter, it would be uh, about an older brother who uh, gets in this fight in an alleyway. And then the next chapter would be these two women who get into a fight and betray one another. And over and over were these disconnected, tragic scenes that I could not make sense of and it was frustrating because i wanted to find a golden thread i wanted to know what the point was and i couldn't find a point it was just scattered scenes that didn't seem to make sense of one another it was like seinfeld on steroids i was getting frustrated by it this doesn't mean anything but as i pressed through the book something began to happen Dostoevsky's masterful ability to tell a story uh, began to come to the surface and he brought all of these characters in their separate vignettes and in their separate tragedies and struggles to intersect in one another's lives. And they didn't just intersect, but out of this community of hooligans surfaced this theme of redemption in which all of these people at the end of the book found redemption in this community with one another. And I picked up the book frustrated, I put the book down with chills. Now, some of our lives are just like that. Maybe you come to church on on Sunday and you're riveted in the euphoria of the moment. The music is going, you're singing, you're loving it, you're drinking coffee with the most Christian people you've ever met and you're just singing songs and going through the scriptures and Looking at books and then you go to lunch and you eat hamburgers and hot dogs or whatever it is. And then you go to the beach and Sunday is beautiful and then you wake up and it's Monday. <laughs> you go to the job that you hate with the coworkers who don't respect you and the, the uh, boss who won't give you the raise. And then Tuesday, get in a fight with your parents or your kids. And then Wednesday... Struggle. The economy doesn't change and you can't pay the bills. And then Thursday, feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem. And then Friday and so on and so forth. Different scenes and vignettes that you can't make sense of. And most of them, if you were perfectly honest with yourself, don't look like Sunday. They're actually pretty tragic. And you desperately want to make sense of it all. Where do we get our comfort? We get our comfort from a bigger story that makes sense. Of all of those scenes. Our lives are kind of like a novel. They're disconnected. We go through scenes that don't always make sense. And some of them are tragic. And if we aren't careful. Our tendency is to look at the things that we struggle with. And to say I will make sense of it myself. I will write this story. I will finish my story. And the the way that we tend to do that. Is by concocting. A conclusion or finishing the story by uh, perhaps by uh, creating our own system of, of morality. Well, I, I, I am at a loss of happiness. I'm not being fulfilled. I don't have joy. So I will change this and I will do this better in order to find happiness. I will be a better Christian. I will be a better person. I will serve my neighbor. I will do all of these things that the Bible says. I will, do, I, I will uh, fulfill the golden rule. I will be faithful and I will uh, give to those who are hurting. And I will just better myself. And I'll grow smarter and I'll make more money. And somehow through all of those things, I will find in my life a happy ending. We end up trying to write and finish our own story. And unfortunately, according to my experience and many of yours, we don't always do a good job, do we? We mess it up along the way. We do some good things. If we're completely honest with ourselves, we don't always do a great job in our search. C.S. Lewis once quipped that all that we call human history, money, poverty... Ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is the long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And God's eternal purpose that Paul alludes to and that the scriptures speak vividly of is that God wants to be our fulfillment. God created you before there was sin in the world that he might create you simply to fulfill and to satisfy and to dwell among you. He created you simply to share his, the joy that he has known in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. He just created you to dwell among you. As the... Uh, Older theologians would write in the shorter Western Catechism that some of you, um, excuse me, the shorter Catechism some of you are familiar with that, that starts with this line, what is, the, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God designed creation and humanity that he might dwell in us and that we might find in him our satisfaction, and our fulfillment, and we keep messing it up by writing our own story. And this is where the mystery of grace comes in. Paul says in verse 9, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had been keeping a secret This entire time. What is the mystery? It is the mystery that is in accordance with his eternal plan. It is the way that God has chosen to make his dwelling among his people. Now what do you think of when you think of a mystery? A lot of us might think of a mystery as some type of enigma that we have to figure out. It's like a a, a mystery or a story that we have to get to the conclusion. It's like Sherlock Holmes or Encyclopedia Brown, whatever your era is. (laughs) You have to get to the bottom of this mystery and figure it out. But when Paul uses mystery in Ephesians, he uses mystery in the entirely opposite fashion. It's not something that we have to figure out. The mystery that Paul uses has to be revealed by God. Because we would never figure it out for ourselves. The mystery that God has to reveal to us. We would never discover on our own. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world came together into this little theological huddle and began to debate and discuss whether there was any one belief that was unique to the Christian faith. They began to throw out some terms and eliminating some of the possibilities. Well, maybe it's the incarnation. Well, no, other religions have versions of God's appearing in human form. Oh, maybe it's the resurrection of God. Well, no, other religions, you know, they have accounts of people returning from the dead. They began to wrestle with this concept, and the debate went on for a, a, a certain amount of time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. <laughs> What's the rumpus about? he asked. <laughs> they began to tell him, some of his colleagues began to share with him, well, we're, you know, discussing what Christianity's unique contribution is among the many different world religions. And in an instant, Lewis blurted this out. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. Whenever Paul uses mystery in the book of Ephesians, it is always tied to the gospel of grace. Whenever Paul speaks of a mystery, he's speaking about salvation through faith By grace alone. And why is grace so mysterious? Well think of it in contrast to the law. Nowhere in the Bible. Do you ever see the ten commandments being spoken of as a mystery. You never hear about the golden rule as some mysterious thing. Well why not? Because that's exactly what you would expect in this life. Because it makes perfect sense. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In order to get this, you must do that. In order to achieve righteousness, you must be righteous. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't covet. Obey your parents. It's never, throughout scripture, ever spoken of a mystery because it makes complete sense. How do you get religious salvation? Well, through merit. Are you depressed? Well, what do you need to do about it? Well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. Well, you don't have satisfaction in this life? Well, maybe if you made more money. Well, you're lonely? Well, you need a spouse. You're not fulfilled. You're not happy. You're not satisfied. Well, you need to do better in this life. You don't feel accepted. You don't feel worthwhile. Well, you need to be a better Christian. These stories are all very typical. Typical. We write our own story, we follow our own rules, and we end up trying to save ourselves from the mess that we made and the bad endings that we concocted for ourselves. But grace is a mystery. Grace is Jesus stepping in on the scene and turning everything that we knew up on its head. I mean, think about it. It's the Son of God coming and triumphing through Weakness and suffering. The gospel of grace is Jesus Christ winning through losing. The gospel of grace is that Christ was victorious through the shame of the cross. And that upside-down mystery, that that upside-down sense of thinking has implications for those who choose to to feed off of it. Well, what does it do to us? The gospel of grace says that you think that you're a good person. Actually, you're worse than you ever thought possible. But by faith in Christ, you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. What? It means that you get something for nothing. In fact, far worse than that, you get something even though you did everything wrong. In the purest sense of the word, the gospel of grace is scandalous. It does not make sense. It offends. And it is a mystery, one that Paul, at this point in history, is choosing to unravel. At the end of the Brothers Karamazov one of the brothers in this dysfunctional family, finds himself being put on trial for an unspeakable crime. His name's Dimitri. And as the prosecutor takes the podium and begins to rail on him, bringing up witnesses, the case begins to mount, and he begins to cower in shame, knowing that he will be convicted because of what he has done. It looks hopeless for him. And then this man by the name of... uh, Well, I can't pronounce his name. The defense attorney steps up to the podium and little by little begins to dismantle every single witness that speaks and accuses against his client. After he's done with them, he brings up a case discrediting the the, the prosecuting lawyer. And after that, he begins to weave together this beautiful romantic scene of his client. And everybody is in awe. But then he pulls a crazy, mysterious move. He says to the gentleman of the jury and to the people listening, he says, now take, for example, the fact that my client is guilty of this unspeakable crime. He would deserve punishment and he would deserve prison. But do you want to punish him fearfully, terribly, with the most awful punishment that could be imagined, and yet at the same time save him and regenerate his soul? If so, overwhelm him with your mercy. You will see, you will hear how he will tremble and be horror struck. How can I endure this mercy? How can I endure so much love? Am I worthy of it? That's what he will exclaim. When the Son of God stepped into the middle of our mess. It would have been perfectly just for him to take people like us. And stick us in the prison of our own tragedy. And of our own judgment and of the wrath of God. But he unravels a mystery in saying. What if I showed mercy towards those who didn't deserve it? What if I was gracious, scandalously gracious. Towards those who deserve far more. Worse. Not only will it bring you to the depths, but it will alleviate you and regenerate your soul. God's eternal purpose from Genesis to Revelation is that He wants. To create out of people that were made in his own image a place for him to dwell. People that he can satisfy in and of himself. And the mystery of the gospel is that he chooses people that are far deserving from that. He chooses people that are hooligans, that are reckless, that write their own stories, that sin against him and each other. And he says, I will embrace this group of sinners. I will take this group of rebels and these are the ones I will present as a bride to my son. I will take this bunch of natural born enemies and out of them I will create a home in which my spirit will dwell. Grace is a mystery because it makes absolutely no sense. We would never figure it out for ourselves. And that's why you always get so much pushback against the gospel of grace. Often, in my experience, in the church. It's often by people who have tasted of grace and been converted that will one day later say, Well, okay, now that we've gotten a taste of grace, now that we've experienced grace, now bring back the rules, baby. I know I was saved by grace, but you know, I want to kind of put on some training wheels, and do it myself. God, you you had a wonderful introduction, but I want to write the epilogue. You changed my heart, but I want to make this happen for myself. I want to now accumulate righteousness. What you started in the Spirit, I want to fulfill in the flesh. And for some strange reason it's usually Christians who experience the most pushback about grace from other Christians. Even Christians have a difficult time with the gospel of grace. It's too much. It's too traumatizing. Even within the past month, the biggest pushback I have heard in this church is you guys emphasize grace too much. I don't hear, man, you have a problem with those tattoos. You need to cover up. I expect that. I don't hear, you know what, I can't believe you're in the pulpit. You're only 31 years old. That's a joke. I expect to hear that. I don't hear, man, I'm tired of your your weird slang and the weird words and the phrases that you use. Can you just speak in a different... I don't hear any of those things that I expect. The one complaint I hear the most consistently is you guys emphasize grace behind the pulpit too much. And I hear it in the community. You guys practice too much grace towards each other. And it always comes from the mouths of Christians. You will never hear that from the lips of a convict. You'll never hear from the lips of a convict too much grace. Brothers and sisters, if we ever find ourselves complaining over the lavish extent of grace being shown in a church it's because you've forgotten that you were a convict Now some would say well I get that but don't we also need to practice holiness like doesn't you know I know we're saved by grace but don't we need to walk in the holiness of God doesn't you know don't we stop sinning somewhere in there absolutely Doesn't God fix sinners? Absolutely. Doesn't God renew and restore and cause us to walk? Didn't God once say a couple times, I'm calling you to be holy even as I am holy? Absolutely. But you don't have to worry about accumulating that stuff. See, the person that understands the sheer grace of God will automatically be changed because grace isn't just words on a page. It is a traumatizing, truth. Of God, It is a mystery we would never figure out. And to the sinner that latches a hold of it. It will upset your equilibrium. It will turn your world upside down. It will traumatize you and shake you up. It will remove the shackles from your eyes. And it will cause you to say. How in the world is this possible? How can I endure this mercy? How can I endure such love? Am I worthy of it? Grace will change you. If you believe it. Don't worry about it. Be in awe of the sheer grace of God. Grace is the mysterious way that God chooses to secure his eternal purpose. He said, this is what I'm after. I'm after a group of people that I could plant myself in and satisfy for all of eternity. How am I going to do it? The mystery of grace. You know how you respond to grace? Start to let it change you. You begin to repent of trying to be the hero of your own story. And when you find yourselves doing that, when you begin to respond to grace, you will find the eternal purpose, the passion of God being lived out where you live. And you don't have to be sensational. You don't have to move to china or russia or to the middle east to live out the passion the driving passion of god you can you can go to your kid's soccer game and see the passion of god being lived out on the field well how you go to your kid's soccer game and you mingle with parents and other children who live by this rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you Which makes perfect sense. But you having been traumatized by grace. Step in on the scene. And you say I will do unto others. As Christ has done unto me. And in doing so. You exemplify the driving passion. Of the living God. You are a part of the expanding kingdom of God. Sweeping the world by storm. It's by loving your spouse in the kitchen at your own expense. It's by putting your spouse ahead of yourself. It's by uh, doing the same thing with your coworkers. You begin to live out the gospel of grace. And through that, Christ is working out the eternal purpose and passion of God. But every story needs a hero. And there's something liberating about coming to this conclusion where you say, I am not the hero of this story. Paul would say in chapter 3, verse 11, this was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is he carrying out? He said in chapter 1, verse uh, 10, at the right time, God would bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. There's something very liberating and freeing about following a great hero into a big story. You ever notice, this is kind of why we love to get caught up in big stories. Whether it's movies or novels or documentaries or short stories. We just love epic stories. No one watches a movie about random facts. We watch movies and read books about romance and rescue and redemption. Why? Because there's something deeply ingrained in the heart of men and women that longs for that to be true. And in the unfolding story of God, God says, I am going To embrace a group of sinners and rescue them from their sin. In the unfolding story of God, God says, I am going to take a bunch of rebels and I am going to present them as a bride to be romanced by my son. He says, I am going to step into this messed up world and I am going to redeem all of these broken scenes. Our hearts are longing for the real thing, but every story needs a hero. Paul presents that hero as Jesus Christ. And Christ isn't just involved in the unfolding mystery. Paul would tell the church in Colossae that Christ himself is the mystery. There was a composer by the name of Toscanini who was about to wrap up this incredible show. And in the middle of a bunch of euphoric fans that were giving him a standing ovation, he began to play encore after encore. And they began to remain standing, applauding, and screaming his name, asking for more. After multiple encores, he stopped. Toscanini turned his back on the audience and faced the orchestra. And in the middle of their applause and their euphoria and their passion, he said to them in words that only the orchestra could hear, he said to them, I am nothing. And you are nothing. But Beethoven. He is everything. Brothers and sisters, I I cannot promise you that if you engage the story of God that your problems are going to go away. In fact, you'll probably have more. What I can promise you Is that God is weaving together a story for his eternal purpose. And he's wanting to sweep you up into it. And even though the difficulties in your life will not disappear. You will find comfort in being able to say. I am nothing. And we as a church are nothing. But Christ is everything. And in response. Jesus will say to you and to his church as he said to the disciples in John 16 here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows but take heart I have overcome the world Heavenly Father Lord we just we respond like Paul did would us say that when I think of these things, I, I bow the knee before the Father. God, we come to you right now in tremendous humility. And Lord, where we are not humble, I pray that you would pull us to the dust by the sheer grace of God. That you would open our eyes to see the story that you are weaving in the cosmos and you are sweeping us up into. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. Many of whom, if they're honest, look at their lives and see an entire mess. Things that we cannot make sense of, things that are confusing, things that are tragic, to be honest. And I pray that those of us that are suffering from that, Lord would be able to come to the foot of the cross and say, "Christ, we cannot make sense of our own lives. We want to be subsumed. We want to be absorbed. We want to be swept up in your life. I want to be able to say that Christ, you who were crucified, our lives are crucified with you. Our lives are no longer our own. pray that in this house and across these three campuses that Lord you would begin to minister to us in the way that you have been doing for centuries upsetting our mad tenacious desire to try to make something out of our lives and I pray that you would break us of those habits that you would lavish us with grace that you would save our souls from the broken stories we're trying to write that we would come to the cross and find at the cross and at the resurrection, at the empty tomb, a better champion to live for. God, I pray that you would remove the burden that we've put on ourselves and that you would place it on the broad shoulders of our hero, Jesus Christ. And I pray that in this house you would heal us. And in doing so, open our eyes, God, to see you in a wonderful, beautiful, more glorious way in a way that would cause us not to just be so captivated by what we're trying to do in this life. But to see this is what God is doing in the world and on the coastlands. And I cannot wait to be a part of it. God we pray these things by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus. Amen.